Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for being here. Uh, we are in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10. And uh, we're going to get into some interesting things, at least I think, uh, in these, these two verses uh, as we go through it. We know in Zechariah 9, uh, here's Dead Sea, Galilee. Uh, coming from the north, it, the Lord is coming from the north. He's gone through Syria, gone through Lebanon, Tyre's further up here, Tyre in Lebanon, destroys Tyre in the island city there, comes on down, goes through the Philistine cities, and it's, it's the Lord that is coming, but we've overlaid this with Alexander's march out of Greece coming against Persia, and it, it overlays very nicely, if that's exactly what's being prophesied here, it, it's not for sure. Or if Alexander's movement was an early uh, manifestation of uh, a movement that's going to happen later on in prophecy. But either way, historically, with Jerusalem being right here, uh, Alexander did come through Syria, Phoenicia, destroyed Tyre, uh, took out the Philistine cities. Uh, they rebelled against him, destroyed them. And he had asked Alexander, as we read last week, had asked uh, the Jews to send him supplies while he is fighting Tyre. And Jaduah the high priest said, no, because I've given an oath to Darius. And this Darius is this Darius III, the last king. He's going to face Alexander and be killed fleeing from Alexander later on because Alexander's going to cut off the connection between uh, Persia in the north and Egypt. He's going to control the entire west because he's coming from the west. He, by taking this, he controls the Mediterranean coast. By controlling the coastal plain and cutting this off, he separates Egypt from Persia. So Persia is isolated from anything from the west and from the south. Then he's going to turn and head out to, to Persia after Egypt is uh, subdued. Uh, now, Darius is going to be retreating, 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 and eventually Alexander wants to meet Darius, wants to capture him, uh, but he ends up being assassinated by one of his generals as they're fleeing, and Alexander never gets to meet him. Nonetheless, when Jadua asked, uh, was asked by Alexander to help support with provisions uh, his battle against Tyre, and Jadua says, I, I can't. I've sworn an oath. Alexander vowed, uh, as Alexander would, he, we read about what he did to Gaza, uh, that he was, when he gets done here, he's going to turn, go up, the, and this is not an easy climb, He's going to come off the coastal plain, go through the hill country, and go up the steep hills, mountains, they're called, uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, and you'd, you'd come up and you'd approach it from the north and attack from the north. Jerusalem is always attacked from the north because you've got the Kidron Valley, you've got the Hinnom Valley going around, uh, it, you've got protection. Uh, there's no way of coming at it from the east, no way of coming at it from the, the west. The south, you're going uphill, but the north, there's a, you can come high above the city and come down. And you saw the pictures last time we looked. You can, you can stand up on top here, about two miles at the, at the high point, the, the high place of Gibeah. Saul was there. Uh, that's where Saul was anointed. That's where Solomon offered sacrifices. Samuel's tomb is there today. And you can look down and see the Mount of Olives. You can see the Temple Mount. You can see Jerusalem. And then that's where the invasions would come from. So Alexander turns with full intention of destroying Jerusalem, riding on his horse. Uh, I've got some notes in here. I, Brucipolis, Brucipolis, if you look, uh, I, I went ahead, I mentioned it last time. Page 
27 of your notes. It's page 3, so don't freak out if you're listening on audio. It's like 27 pages of notes. Well, it's going to take me three months to get through them. Uh, But it's on page 27, and at the top it talks about your king, point B. Alexander did march to Jerusalem, but on a horse. Uh, The horse was Bucephalus. Uh, And now, Bucephalus is one of the famous horses. Has anybody heard of Bucephalus? Is this, no one's, okay, because this is, you know, sorry about your history classes. Uh, Was born around, the horse was born around 355, died in June of 326, the historian Plutarch writing in 344. Now notice, 344 is during Alexander's life. So Plutarch was writing history, philosophy, and he would have known Alexander and his father, Philip II. He writes at the age of 12 or 13, Alexander and his father, King Philip the, uh, the Second, And you can see King Philip II right here. It's Philip King right here. And he's, this is all Philip's activity, and then he's assassinated. And Alexander, when Philip's assassinated in 336, Alexander unites Greece and Macedonia and starts marching uh, into Persian territory to take the Persians. And indeed he does. Well, Philip, with a 12, 13-year-old son, Alexander, were negotiating for a horse. Uh, it was a hybrid, a good bred of horses. With a, he got the name of the, uh, uh, the, the horse trader, uh, a Thessalian. Uh, Bucephalus appeared to be untrainable, and the price was way too high, and Prince, uh, or, uh, Philip was not willing to pay it. Alexander liked the horse and told his father, I can train the horse, and if I can't, I will buy it. I'll, I'll pay for it. And Alexander basically calmed the horse, talked to the horse, turned its face to the sun, as Plutarch writes, or legend has it. it, it it's one of those things. Uh, the horse no longer could see it, or Bucephalus no longer could see its shadow, and calmed down. Alexander got on the horse, began riding it, and he rode it all the way from Greece, Macedonia, all the way across Asia, all the way down through Syria, at Tyre, rode it through the Philistine territory, up into Jerusalem, and rode it into Jerusalem, and then down to Egypt, and until 326, uh, he, he ends up being, he dies after a battle uh, the, uh, in, in Pakistan. I've got the battle written in here. Um, and he, he ends up dying and is buried there. They've got a couple locations where they think the horse is buried. Uh, but it's a black horse, had a white star on its, on its head, had one blue eye, apparently. And that's, again, that's what we know about Bucif. Now, this, you think, well, that's trivial, that's just entertainment material. And it could be. I, I find it very interesting. Uh, and it's, it, as far as history goes, it's, you know, as legitimate as anything, uh, unless you get archaeology and everything except uh, going along with it. But uh, the key there is riding a horse, because verse 9, the king is coming riding a donkey, and we're going to talk about that. I've got to hurry and get to those, some great verses. Nonetheless, Alexander comes riding Bucephalus up north, with the intention of destroying Jerusalem. I mean, destroyed Syria, destroyed Lebanon, destroyed Tyre, destroyed Gaza, the Philistine territory, or Philistine cities, and goes to Jerusalem because they had refused to support. When he gets there, that's when Jadua was worried. Uh, and we read that last week, the Josephus report. Everybody, all the people dressed in white, the high priest in full dress, they march out in formation, not in a military formation, but to greet Alexander north of the city. I showed you pictures of that location, the high spot right there. Alexander gets off Bucephalus, 
and goes and greets, uh, salutes the high priest in an honorable way, uh, showing respect. Everybody greets him back, and the whole military, including his, his general, his be- best general who's traveling with him, it's like, well, what's going on? He says, I- I've seen these people. The, the, I saw people just like this. A God came and spoke to me and looked just like this and told me I would be successful against the Persians if I went. And this was, everything here was what was in that vision. Now again, it appears he was seeing something in again. And people say, well, how could, how could a, a Gentile uh, pagan king have a vision, a dream from God? Well, how is a Pharaoh did uh, in Abraham's day and Joseph's day? Uh, the Philistine leader did. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar did on a couple occasions. Uh, Cyrus seemed to be in tune with what the Lord was talking about. Uh, so we, we see, we got, exam- we got the wise men coming from the east. So that's not unusual. I mean, it's not in the Bible. Uh, uh, but it is recorded by Josephus that, that he did make that comment. And the, historically, Jerusalem was spared. He's going there full, Alexander's going there with full intention of destroying Jerusalem, sees the the, the image of what he saw in the vision that the God told him, you will be successful. And that lines up with Daniel. Daniel said the same thing in two different visions, that the king from the east is going to come, or from the west. Well, goes in and ends up riding Bucephalus into the city. The high priest runs alongside of him, uh, shows him how to worship in the temple as a Gentile. He uh, follows the rules, uh, blesses them, gives them privileges. Uh, the Jadua asked that, the people of Israel that are scattered among the nations be able to continue their traditions as Alexander because they says you they showed him the book of Daniel says you will continue to conquer as you go east and so whenever he went the Jews were allowed to continue they didn't have to conform to Hellenism which is interesting because uh, the generals that follow especially their descendants the solutions are going to come down and force Hellenism or Hellenism means Greek culture, Helen, the, the, the woman, Hellenism, uh, uh, that she was the reason for the Trojan Wars. Uh, uh, they come down and force Hellenism on the Jews, and that leads to the Maccabean Revolt 167 because they refuse to give up their traditions. And nonetheless, now, we are in chapter 9. With that being said, uh, chapter 9 uh, verse 1, very quickly, the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, that's Syria, and will rest upon Damascus. It's against them. I mean, the word is coming. For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel uh, are on the Lord. That's the NIV's translation. It could be the eyes of the Lord are on the people. He's coming over sin, but nonetheless, he's coming from the north. And upon Hamath too, which borders on it. And upon Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful, he's, his word is coming against them. And it's the Lord. It says nothing about Alexander, but Alexander's going to be the one that, that does this. Just like uh, the Assyrians were the hand of God's wrath. Nebuchadnezzar came. The Romans came. Alexander's coming as, as the Lord's tool. Tyre was, has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea. And that is what the Lord did. But the Lord did that when Alexander did it himself. 
Uh, Nebuchadnezzar couldn't do it. There's like 18 years of battle with the Assyrians, and the Assyrians never did it. But once Alexander did it, Tyre's gone. So it's not like the Lord is going to come back in the future and do it, fulfill it, because it never came back. Once Alexander drug it off, like God says in Ezekiel, that was going to take place, it, was, it never came back. So it kind of, in some of these prophecies, you can see like a, an early fulfillment with preceding a greater fulfillment in the end times. This really seems like when the Lord does this, destroys her, it happened when Alexander did it. Uh, but the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy the power of the sea, and she will be consumed by fire. As, now we go down to the Philistine territory, and this is recorded by historians and by Josephus, that Alexander does the same thing. Ascalon will see it in fear. He'll, they'll see what's taking place up here and be afraid. Gaza will, will writhe in agony, and we read about that destruction last time. Ekron too, for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king. He was actually drugged to death. Ashkelon will be deserted. Foreigners will occupy Ashdod. They're going to be gone, and, and foreigners are going to start moving in, uh, filling the space. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines, and I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth, all their pagan worship systems, and they're going to disappear from history. Those who are left will belong to our God and become leaders in Judah. They'll just basically morph into part of the Jewish territory, just, well, just like the Jebusites. And Ekron will be like the Jebusites, just absorbed into Israel. They're no longer an identity of themselves. They're part of Israel. And I will, def- now, watch it. Verse 8, Alexander has done all those things, and he turns to go to Jerusalem. But then God says here, but I will defend my house. Now, who are you defending your house against? God, the Lord is doing all this marching from the north. He says he's coming, but then he's going to defend his house. Well, the only one doing the invasion is the Lord, except if you combine it, the Lord is using Alexander, and Alexander's a man making decisions as a man, acting like a man. The Lord is using the man, but the man Alexander is, turns with intention of destroying Jerusalem like he has Olam because they would not cooperate. But the Lord right here says, Ah, but I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. And so in, in th- 326, uh, when this, we came down through here, when this all takes place here, uh, Alexander comes to I- Jerusalem. Uh, the Lord spares the city and kind of fulfills those verses. Now, we're going to get into a lot of eschatological verses coming up in the rest of these, th- these chapters. And the Lord is again going to deliver Jerusalem in the end times. And we'll, we'll get to those verses. But now we come to verse 9. It, it, does everyone understand what we're saying right here? We're talking about the Lord coming, the Lord defending His house. And I'm, we're comparing, we're saying the Lord was working through Alexander or the king. Alexander on a horse who was conquering, a war, warrior. All right. Now, with that being said, we, now, this is where we run into chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous, having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, when it says 
riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, that's very descriptive and it's very intentional and it has meaning, and I'll show you. Then it says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, that referred to northern Israel, and the war horses from Jerusalem, that would refer to Judah, uh, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. Now, we'll get into this next week, and I showed it to you last week here, because what we've got here, it says, who's marching from the north? Yahweh. So Yahweh is marching, according to the scriptures. We, I think that's fulfilled in Alexander's movement, but it is identified as Yahweh. Now, who is riding on the colt? Your king. Your king is riding on a colt. So now, the Lord's not riding on a colt. Your king is riding on a colt. This would be a man. And this would be a descendant of David. So the king rides in riding on a colt. Verse 10, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim. Now who's I? I is Yahweh. Your king came riding in on a donkey, but now Yahweh uh, is taking away uh the chariots the war horses um and then it says uh and and the battle bow will be broken and then he says he will proclaim peace to the nations his rule will extend from sea to sea now we'll get we got to get into this next week who's he he is your king so you see yahweh actively doing things fighting wars but you also see their king, the man. And so what you've got is you've got the divine and you've got the human king. And I've, I've got verses, I'll, we'll be, build on this a little bit later this evening. But David and his sons were always promised that Yahweh would be with them, that he would uphold David, that David was the king. One of the key reasons David was king was because he was totally dependent on Yahweh. Now, again, I'll read the verses coming up here later. But an example is Saul. Saul was chosen to be king because he was taller. He was a, a looked like a king. It's like, we've got a real king. But you trust in man, and man, it, Saul, didn't follow the Lord. He thought, ah, I've got some of my own ideas. And he was rejected. Where David had no choice but you know the david and goliath story uh him, him having to face saul he he was in, in his whole early life was basically he was a, a fugitive running from the king saul and he had to count on who the psalms are all about david counting on yahweh and so the man has to depend on god what well, where this is heading is eventually jesus is gonna we this is clearly jesus this is palm sunday no doubt about it riding in on a donkey but jesus is the man he is the king but he is totally gonna to fulfill the role of the king he's gonna have to be totally dependent upon yahweh but as the story goes in this case yahweh has become the man and so this union between yahweh and the house of david was throughout israel's history but it was going to come very very close together a perfect union when yahweh himself becomes the man and so you've got pronouns happening here we'll look at it more next time look in verse 14 uh this is this is again i'm going to, i'm very excited about getting to verse 14 
because this is talking eschatological as, as we read through this. Eventually, we're going to have to just give up because we run out of history, and these things are happening sometime in the future. And they align with other prophecies. It says, then the Lord, and it's, you can see in the NIV, it's all capital letters, then Yahweh will appear over them. And that's over them, Israel. Because he's going to come back to defend his people, Israel. He's going to come to defend Israel or Jerusalem again. He, he defended it in, in chapter 9, verse 8, apparently when Alexander was approaching. Well, there's going to be a day when the nations are going to come against it, and he'll come over them. His arrow will flash like lightning, and the sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. Now, just previews of things to come. You've got the word appear, and eschatologically, you've got some words uh, like the uh, parousia, You've got the, the, the apocalypse, the apocalypse, you know, of the appearing, his, his visible, uh, he, 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 his return. And he appears in the sky. This is Yahweh appearing over them uh, like a flash in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. At the sound of the trumpet, the Lord is going to be marching out. Now, that's over Israel at that point. But you can tie that in with Matthew 24. You can tie that in with Paul's prophecies. You can tie that in with Revelation. So that's, that word appear, and I've, I'll, I'll build on that quite a bit later, but that is really, a, a, I mean, it's all just right there. It's like, well, that's not really the same. It's like, well, but you understand why I would say, whoa, 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 you've got the appearance, the appearing, the, the parousia, the, the apocalypse. You've got the flash uh, of lightning. You've got the sound of the trumpet. Um, and then you've got him coming out and fighting against the nations and defending his people. That's coming up. We're going back to chapter 9, verse 9, before we get too far ahead. So here we go. I showed you pictures last time of what it looked like from the north, looking down on Jerusalem, where Alexander would have been met by the the priests and the people all dressed in white when he came. Uh, Now, 300 years after Alexander... This now is, a, the top picture there is a, a, looking from the base of the Mount of Olives over the Kidron Valley looking west at the eastern gate on page 24. That's the eastern gate. Now that eastern gate was built by Solomon the Magnificent in 1535. That's a, that's a 1535 uh, a building there. Uh, Maybe the Byzantines had done some work there, and he built up over it and brought it in. But it's built right along the same wall line, and it's right up against the temple. In fact, you can see Herodian stones further down both directions that were there in the first century. I mean, you can, you can see them. I've got, in the Jerusalem book, I'm like touching them. So, I mean, this, and this is on the east side towards the Kidron Valley. So that gate is not the actual gate, but it is the actual location. Uh, if you go down underneath the Golden Gate, and no one's been allowed to do that, they have got a couple snapshots accidentally because of water, rain, and the people have slipped in the gate because Muslims got tombs all along their graves. And when it, you know, it rains, it washes water, dirt away. Well, at one point, someone slipped in. It was 1967, 1972. Uh, Fleming, James Fleming. If you want to just Google James Fleming, uh, Eastern Gate, you can see the photograph that he took, and he's under this gate, and you can see the arch of another gate in a picture that he took, and bones from the graves that are buried there. Well, once that got published, the Muslims came and put 
you know, concrete and graves that you can't get there anymore. Uh, there's been another time something like that happened. But, for example, if you go around from the, west, the east wall here, go up to the north side of the city, and the Damascus Gate that Solomon built in the 1530s, uh, you can see the Damascus Gate. People use it, go in and out. It's a glorious gate. They have excavated down. And I've got some very detailed pictures in the Jerusalem book of being down on the first century pavement underneath. They've got an, a, a bridge going into the, what we'd say today's gate from the 1500s uh, that people used. And now you're down actually walking around. They've got, there's Roman games carved in the pavement. You've got stones. You've got arches of the gateway. You've got the pedestrian gate. You've got the, where the old Damascus gate used to be. You can see the pavement, the courtyard down there. It's all right. It's not even like, oh, what do you think? It's like, this was the Damascus Gate from the first century, and the gate above it is the, also the Damascus Gate, but it's built right above it. The same thing would be true here. I would think the original gate, possibly even Solomon's Gate, which may have been rebuilt and still used in Herodian days, New Testament times, that Solomon would have used. That's the gate Jesus would have gone in. It's below this potential if that makes sense now this picture below that is a close-up i'm ta- look on the top of mount uh, olives looking down at a little more of a top angle and i've got a line drawn there and that is that that line represents if you can imagine this that represents if this is the solomon's temple court was 500 cubits square the eastern gate was right here and that line that's drawn is this corner line right here. Now, Herod extended it further north this way. The Hasmoneans extended it this way, and Herod extended it further yet again. Uh, and so that's what the Temple Mount today is bigger. But that line that's drawn right there, where it's got, I've got Hero- Herod's extension aimed this way. Those are all Herodian stones going this way, or the base of it is. And then this is Solomon's original. So that is that would be the corner of Solomon's Temple Mount. The East Gate would be right there. And I, I've got an arrow pointing towards some Herodian stones. There's an offset stone that it would be the corner of the pavement there. And there's some stones Nehemiah would have added in right there. That's all. That's the gate. Now, the point being, Jesus is going to come riding on a donkey. And you've got Alexander riding on a horse 300 years before, a military horse coming in military strength, coming in power. But the Lord has him back down, and the Lord defends the city on that day by giving directions to, to Jaduah, the priest, the high priest, at, if we read Josephus and, and believe what Josephus is saying. 300 years later, this would be like uh, 330 B.C., you know, right in there, uh, Jesus is going to come in 30 A.D., and he's coming on a donkey. And he's coming just the opposite of Alexander. He's coming, as it says right here, uh, righteous, having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the key difference, really, the key difference there, if you want to just be, just fly through this verse fast, the difference being, it was a donkey, it was not a horse. He did not come militarily, he came in uh with with peace with victory it doesn't mean it doesn't mean he wasn't a threat it doesn't mean he wasn't a military leader it means there was no war it means 
I can ride in on a donkey because I don't need a war horse. I'm coming in peace. And why would anyone come in peace would only be because you've already established peace through war. I mean, you come, you come riding to Alexander on a donkey in peace. Uh, and again, the Jadu of the high priest walked out and met him, and he, he, he backed down. But you're going to get slaughtered. You're going to have to have won the battle. And if we go, I'll, I'll keep, I've got coming at this from several directions. When Jesus came in this gate in 30 A.D., you remember where he had come from. A month before that, he's where? Caesarea Philippi, base of Mount Hermon, Syria. He, he took his disciples outside of Israel. They went north in northern, outside the borders of Israel to Caesarea Philippi, gates of Hades. There's temples there, to, uh, uh, the Pan, the pagan gods, uh, temple to Caesar. And he says to them, uh, who do men say that I am? And, you know, who do you say? Uh, they say you're the son of God. He goes up that mount, is transfigured, meets with Elijah and Moses, tells his disciples, Peter, James, and John, uh, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, and I'll be crucified. Of course, that's where Peter says, not so, Lord. And Jesus rebuked him. And Jesus begins a march. I mean, he comes straight down. He comes right down from Caesarea Philippi, comes down, crosses over to the east side of the Jordan River, comes down the east side, crosses back over near the place that he was probably baptized, where John the Baptist was baptizing, and comes into Jericho, uh, is welcomed, and continues up to Jerusalem for Palm Sunday. So when he goes in that gate right there, Jesus himself didn't fight any wars, although his entire ministry was a war, a spiritual war, and he was demonstrating, as we're going through the book of Mark, he was constantly demonstrating his authority over satan satan's kingdom was fallen he was not fighting the nations he was fighting the kingdom of satan casting out demons no problem with with a word they would leave uh, they, they there's no he was unstoppable and he demonstrated his authority for three years and after a three-year demonstration of wrecking havoc in satan's kingdom he marches from the north and comes in the same gate on a donkey with peace having in a sense won the battle now there's the great battle coming on the cross for sin and that leads into this next verse and we're going to come back to this verse 9 re- re- chapter 9 verse 9 rejoice greatly o daughter of zion shout daughter of jerusalem see your king comes to you righteous having salvation gentle riding on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey then it says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He, your king, will proclaim peace to the nations. See, that, that's, that's universal. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. That's universal. That's the kingdom of God on earth being ruled over, not by Yahweh, but by the king, who is Jesus who is Yahweh in the flesh, uh, who, who, again, we, we've got that hypostatic union taking place. The contrast there is Jesus, verse 9, is universally recognized as being fulfilled on Palm Sunday when Jesus wrote in. In fact, Jesus goes out of his way to say, go get this donkey. And, and, and the disciples apparently go over and tell us the Lord has need of it. And the guy says, oh, yes, this has been arranged. I don't know if it was paid for ahead of time, if it was a vision, a dream. We don't have the details. Jesus says, the donkey's over here at this place. 
And when you, when you start taking it, you say, it's time, the Lord needs it. And he'll say, oh, oh, yes, yes, I know what you're talking about. How that happened, him, an angel visited him. Uh, Jesus sent you know, Judas out there to make a payment, to you know, rent the animal. Maybe Jesus bought it. Maybe Jesus raised it as a child and had someone keep it until he was 30. I made that up. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I, who knows how it happened. But it, it, the donkey was there. Um, and it was fulfilled. And everyone knows that verse 10 is never referred to in the New Testament, but yet the whole New Testament is resting on the fact, looking forward to the fact, that this verse is going to take place. We know Jesus, is, I mean, if it's Paul, if it's James, if it's the book of Acts, if it's Peter on the day of Pentecost, Jesus is coming back. If it's the angels Jesus sends, this Jesus is coming back the same way he left. And when he comes back, he's going to fulfill the rest of the Old Testament prophecies and establish a kingdom, deliver Jerusalem, overthrow the nations, bring them under submission, and set up his kingdom. And so we are living, as we've talked about before, between verse 9 and verse 10. And uh potentially you could you could see this right here uh that jesus comes in peace because the lord is winning yahweh is going to be fighting these battles establishing peace for him and then once the battles are finished uh the the king will then establish a, a kingdom of peace in 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 the rest of verse 10 uh, C to C. Nonetheless, that's kind of what's taking place in those verses. So let's go ahead, turn to page 25 of your notes. And here we've got the English Standard Version. And I'll, I'll say some of these things r- will be repeated. I'll try to move through it so I don't bore you completely. English Standard Version right there. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Notice again, we're going to come back to this. Daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem. Cities were spoken of as females. You know, they, you know the, the city, her, the, the Babylonian city, her this, it, it's the female. And the women in the cities would always sing or mourn after military battle. I know we're living in a woke culture where women are as good as men and everybody's equal. Uh, but back in the day when the world was real, uh, when you'd go to war, the men would go to war and the women would stay home and pray to the gods or the God, or wait for the report. And they'd receive a report of what happened. Are the men coming home, or have the men been killed? If the men are coming home, they've defended us. We live happily on into the next generation. If the men have been killed, uh, we're going to be sold into slavery. We're going to be taken. Yeah, but now the women can rise up and fight. The men couldn't do it, so the women will fight. Okay, go, you do it. That No one did that. That never happened. I mean, it wasn't, the men got defeated in battle, and the only thing left in the city were the women. So the women like, okay, let's rise up. Now you got some situation, okay, you got Judith and stuff, you got some stories there, but that was not because of her military strength. That was for another type of strength that she had in a, uh, it'd be more about her, 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 her appearance, if you would say, and she conquered some men this way. But that's another story that's not what we're talking about. Here. The point is, daughter of Zion is the voice of the city, and here it represents the people. Also, we're going to see the word uh, rejoice is in the imperative. It's a command. And shout aloud is a war cry. It's a victory cry. So commanded, you rejoice. Command, daughter of Zion. You daughters, you were worried. Your, your, your future was hanging in the balance. You may have been sold into slavery, or in this case, stayed in slavery. Uh, but you can shout aloud because 
you can join the victory cry because your men or your king has won the battle and now here he comes behold here he comes he's riding on a donkey the battle is so over he doesn't even have a war horse he's riding on a donkey so chapter point one nine nine describes the character of the coming king and we're going to look at the character of this king that's going to come chapter nine ten presents the king's accomplishments when he comes and that and then we got two comings here you've got the original coming the first coming and the second coming the first coming of christ is nine nine the second coming is nine ten and again notice the first coming he comes like a king uh, a man that would be jesus the second time he comes like yahweh but as we know jesus and yahweh are are the same jesus became the yahweh became flesh uh the whole church age occurs between Zechariah 9.9 and 9.10, just like Isaiah 9.6 and 9.7. And I've, I've, I've read that a month ago or so. I'm going to go read that again. because it's, it's, So you see, this is not It's like, well, that's weird. That's strange. Well, whatever you, you want to call it, it takes place in Isaiah chapter 9 also. I mean, in not chapter 9, and again, we read this before Christmas. It's a few weeks before Christmas. It wasn't like our Christmas message or anything, but here it is. You know this. Chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And there's that hypostatic union. A child is born, that's the king, the man. A son is given, that's the son of God. That's Yahweh. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, prince of peace those are the names of the child that was born who is the king riding on the donkey and that's that's the first coming chapter uh, 9 of isaiah verse 7 of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end he will reign on david's throne over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness notice that justice and righteousness they're going those are going to be buzzwords uh, throughout all of these verses and they're we're going to identify them from that time on forever the zeal of the lord almighty will accomplish this again that's like how do you know this is going to happen because th- the lord is very zealous just like we saw in zechariah zealous he is going to do it the word of god has been spoken and god is going to be god and make sure it happens it's if anything is going to happen this is going to happen why because this is what god is planning on doing this is the whole reason he's doing anything is to do this so this is going to happen because god's going to make it happen it's in his heart and so there you've got again two different verses Uh, a child is born and then all of a sudden the government's on his shoulder and he's establishing a kingdom of peace so we saw the first part the first coming the second coming we're living in the midst of that verse okay back to page 25 of the notes or page two for tonight it says Israel's king uh, will be righteous, which means just. The opposite would be uh, oppressive, lawless, and showing favoritism. Uh, again, now you can see what kind of country we've got. Uh, do you have a righteous, just country, nation, government? Or do you have a nation that is the opposite of just and righteous, which would be lawless, uh, uh, showing favoritism, uh, a two-tiered justice system, or three or four or five tiered if you want to, uh, and oppressive. And that's going to continue in this fourth generation, becoming more and more oppressive, more and more lawless. And lawlessness can be in the streets in the form of riots, 
or it can be in the halls of Congress and the courtrooms as we don't follow the laws. There's laws, but we're just going to let the criminals go. Or let what we would say, or I would say, a criminal go and then find someone that is, has an opposite opposing idea that is not really illegal, it's just not what I think, and arrest them. So now you've got an unjust system, you're lawless, you're not following laws, and you're arresting people and putting people in oppression for various reasons. Uh, and, and again, it's not unusual. It's world history. It's like, well, it's never been like this. It's been like this for thousands of years. Somewhere, this is what's taking place. And it always collapses because it cannot continue that way. Something's it, it's going to destroy itself. But nonetheless, this king is coming righteous. He's coming in justice. He's not going to be oppressive. He's not going to be lawless. You're going to know exactly what happened. Like, for example, when Jesus does come, it says he'll rule with an iron, a scepter of iron, meaning you're going to know exactly what it is, and it's going to be held. You cannot even bend the rule. It's exactly right. Okay, uh, having salvation. The opposite of salvation would be captivity, destruction, death. He's going to have salvation. Now, we're going to look at this in just a moment, that having salvation is going to be two ways. It's going to be for you, for the people. Sing, rejoice, daughters of Zion, uh, because he has salvation for you. He is bringing you deliverance from death, destruction. He's bringing it for you. But it is also passive in the sense that he has, it's not in a sense his, he has received this, which I'm going to be, give you a better demonstration of this. He, the king, and, the, and you got to kind of like, whoa, handle this. The king is going to come and he's, he has salvation for you, but it's going to be in the passive in the sense that he received it. He didn't necessarily create it. He received it. And the only way the, the man, king, the son of David receives anything is from Yahweh. So this man, this king, is going to have to receive salvation. Now, not, not saved from sin, but he's going to have to receive deliverance. He's going to go to war, but it's going to have to be Yahweh delivering the son of David, just like Yahweh delivered David and all the kings. This king himself... And now, and I've got these verses, I'll go through them. He, he's going to be a humble servant. He's going to be the suffering servant. He's going to be, Daniel says, cut off. He's going to lose everything. So you've got prophecies of this, and that's why they've got two messiahs. You've got the messiah that's going to be the suffering messiah, the one who gets cut off, but then you're going to have the glorious messiah. The Israel had to define this. Well, that's because this is going to be the son of David, Jesus, the man, and he's going to have salvation for the people, but that salvation is going to have to come to him first because he himself is going to have to be delivered first from the war, from the oppression. And the cross and the resurrection is, again, classic case, which, again, you've got that ox, uh, oxymoron, that tension. I'm not sure what the word would be. I'm, I'm trying to, where Yahweh is going to raise, like in Romans, cha first chapter, God raised him from the dead because he was the son of God, because he was the son of David. So Jesus was raised from the dead. But yet Jesus, in his ministry, says, I lay my life down and I take it back up. And now how, how can Jesus be raised by God, Yahweh, but yet be able to say, I lay it down and I take it up? 
and you know the answer because he's the hypostatic union. He's, as a man, he's waiting for Yahweh for resurrection. But as Yahweh, I'll be in charge. I'll do it myself. And so that, that makes sense. And again, that, that you can theologically, uh, you could improve on that if you'd like to. Uh, and point C again is humble, and that would be the opposite of proud, boastful, or rebellious. And if you put a horse and Alexander, you'd probably put them on the right side of being oppressive, uh, destruction, uh, proud, boastful, uh, and on a horse, a war horse, and you'd put Jesus on uh, the other side, uh, again, in, in a general sense. Uh, point four, rejoice greatly, talking to the daughters of Jerusalem, is imperative. It's a command, commanding the reader or the one who hears this message to obey and rejoice. So in this case, we're hearing the message, we should be rejoicing. Shout or shout in triumph is the Hebrew word ruah, meaning to raise a shout, to give a blast. So it could be a voice or it could be a blast of a trumpet. And these are the times it's used, for example, in Scripture, shouting affirmation for a king. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see whom the Lord has chosen? There's none like him, Saul. And all the people shouted, long live the king. So there was a, a shout of the people when Saul became king, for example. Uh, crying out in liturgy uh, in Ezra, we'll see that verse. Uh, when all, well, we did already read through it, but we'll look at it again. And all the people shouted with a great shout, it's used four times, when they saw the things, the temple and the things being done, being built. War cry. Uh, in several places in Joshua, they're marching around Jericho, and they're going to give a loud shout. They're going to give a loud ruah. Everyone shout, and at the right time, the walls will come down. Ah, you can also have the word in Judges uh, when, and after a military defeat. You can shout out in victory, or you can shout out in mourning when you've lost the war. You're not coming for peace. They're coming to get you for captivity. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out, shouted out, and fled. And then on page 26, uh, shout out of military triumph. And this is Psalm 41, verse 11. Uh, yeah, verse 11. And I've, the next point, 6 there, it says the context of this shout is number E above of shouting out in military triumph like Psalm 41, 21. That's a typo. It's Psalm 21, 11. It's the one right above it. So it's point E says Psalm 41, 11, and I refer to it in the next point, and I typed it wrong. So, by this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph. My enemy will not ruah because I'm going to be shouting out in victory. And so that is what this means. When it says, uh, daughters of Jerusalem, shout, daughter of Jerusalem, it's ruah. Why are you shouting? Because here comes your king, and he's coming peacefully, riding on a donkey, which means uh, you've won the battle. There's no enemy coming. Here comes your king. He's got peace. The people of Judah and the Israelites are identified with the city of Jerusalem as daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem. Uh, here it is, point eight, L-A-K. It, as in, your king is coming, in the Hebrew can be translated coming uh, to you, lack. The word lack would be to you or for your benefit. Your king is coming. It says, your king comes to you in the NIV, in the English Standard Version. Uh, your king is coming to you. And that could be coming to you, uh, but the ideal is he's coming for you or he's coming for your advantage. So when Jesus comes in that eastern gate on Palm Sunday, the Lord is coming for your benefit. He's coming for you. You've been waiting for this. 
here he comes he's bringing you peace he's coming in justice he's coming in righteousness uh or daughter okay coming for your benefit uh soon the king would be coming to the people of jerusalem for the benefit of the people of jerusalem okay point nine the city of jerusalem or daughter matches the many examples and i've given you several of them right there of cities or women crying in 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 distress because their men were defeated or shouting out crying singing songs of victory a great example would be and i don't even have it here uh well would be david when david was winning they sang saul has slain his thousands and david his tens of thousands the women when they come back from battle the women be dancing in the streets and that made saul mad because saul's the hero but david is like the superstar Everyone wants to get a, a selfie with david uh and so they would sing that but then when saul and jonathan die in second samuel uh, at the end of first samuel but second samuel begins with david's writing a dirge a song uh and he says you daughters of israel weep over saul who clothed you in luxurious luxuriously in scarlet so he's commanding them to weep because their king has been defeated um Point C, the daughters of Zion is told that here they will receive good news of military victory won by the divine warrior, Yahweh, having defeated his enemies. Uh, and that could be in context. Chapter 9, 1 through 8 is all the northern countries falling, but verse 8, but Jerusalem is delivered. So verse 9, in context, verse 9, shout. You are not Syria, you're not Tyre, you're not Gaza, you're Jerusalem, and God is protecting you. So shout, your king came to you riding a donkey in peace. So in context, that was applied in in 330 B.C. They could, they fulfilled that verse in 330. Uh, we, We have peace, shout. It's like, wait, wait, this isn't right because our king didn't come riding on a donkey. He came on uh, bucephalus he came in on a black horse and he's conquering everybody he just spared us it's like well the lord was working and they, it was fulfilled but then jesus comes in 30 a.d it's like here he comes with salvation needing salvation in a passive sense he's going to be delivered uh and and works that and so yes and the new testament tested that, that yes that that was it but yet we know the very next verse 10 is like verse 10 uh, that hasn't happened yet. Now, we, we, so it's like you've got Alexander. It, they fulfilled that verse in three thirty. Uh, Jesus fulfilled that verse, and yet there's a greater ending to it coming. So uh, keep that in mind as we go through there. Um, oh, this is worth looking at. Uh, point D at the bottom, of page twenty six. Uh, a week after Palm Sunday, Jesus. Oh, it'd be Friday or Thursday, depending on where you put the crucifixion. Jesus is carrying his cross, and the women are crying. The professional women are crying. Like Again, the women were weeping as Jesus was carrying his cross. That, just like we saw Jairus' daughter, uh, by the time sh- the daughter dies and a messenger comes and tells Jairus, Jesus walks with him to his house. By the time he gets there, it's already full-blown morning. People are, I mean, it's like, uh, uh, like we, I talked about, it's like hiring a, a band back in the 70s for your prom dance. You, there's all kinds of bands you could choose from, and you'd hire a band, and they'd come in, and they'd sing all the popular songs, and you'd have your little dance. Well, they would have bands back in those days of mourners. There was their, you know, you know uh, Jeremiah's mourn, mourn Shop, and Mourns and Dirges by Jeremiah. You know, you go, oh, we'd like to schedule a morning for uh, next week. 
and they say, okay, well, how many you want? We want, you know, it says, that, remember the rabbi said, uh, the poorest should have at least one mourner singing. So if you're wealthy, you'd have like, you know, 10, 20. You'd have like, you know, maybe a main band, you know, maybe a, a, a headline band playing at your prom. Well, Jarius, who would be a leader, he's not just have one person. He's got, they've got, someone went out to Jeremiah's dirge shop, you know, and hired a, you know, and by the time they get there, they're all singing. And they weren't like emotionally connected to it. They are financially connected to it. This is our job. It's like uh, we, we take a break in 15 minutes. We're going to sing, and then we'll have, a, we'll have some, someone do a solo, and we're all going to go take a break. We'll be back for the second part of the show later. And, I, mean, that's, I mean, I don't say exactly, but that's similar to what it would be like. Uh, well, Jesus is on his way to the cross, and the women are crying. And you can say, well, these women, are, they're really invested in Jesus' ministry could be they could be like oh no i didn't see this coming but if they were connected to jesus where are the people that are connected to jesus during jesus crucifixion they're not lining the streets where are they hiding okay so i'm going to lay this down the people that were on the streets mourning and crying were professionals they were looking they're advertising it's like look at this hey here's the mournful scene here this is one of our best songs oh, oh they're saying their dirge it's like getting some free advertising or whatever and jesus turns to them it says in, in luke 23 but turning to them jesus says, daughters of jerusalem right here this is daughters of jerusalem rejoice your king is coming on a donkey. Now your king is carrying a cross, and you've got professional mourners doing some advertising, uh, trying to get some attention or whatever they're doing. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves. Now he's in the role of Jeremiah, Lamentations. And I've got, some, I got Lamentations right above there somewhere. Uh, yeah, point one under B, under nine. Lamentations one twelve. Um, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Because again, like we've said before, that was 30 A.D. In 40 A.D., it's 70 A.D., Jerusalem falls. So that is the beginning. And he's telling them, by the time your children are adults, you're going to be an old woman and your children are going to be the prime of their life. You should be crying because of what you're doing here in 30 A.D., you're going to be gone in 40 A.D. or in 40 years and uh, cry for your children and yourself okay interesting on one side it's rejoice but he was rejected and so he's telling them uh, you better start crying uh point 10 on page 27 your king refers to yahweh which is marching through syria phoenicia uh alexander marched okay we got that chapter 9 is clearly interpreted by jesus uh defeating demonic oppression marching from Caesarea philippi potentially if you got a march Alexander marched from the north. Uh, Jesus came from Caesarea, came from Galilee, and came to Jerusalem. Uh, then you start wondering about the, the, w- the last battle. You've got Jesus coming from the south, from Edom. You've got him coming down on Mount of Olives. You've got the battle in the Jezreel Valley, Armageddon. And then you've got the king's, king of the north coming down. And so the, there's, all this is going to tie together somehow in the end point d yahweh god is speaking uh look at this right here it says uh the human royal son of david is saved by yahweh the humble king that needs saved by god and look at psalm 72 give the king again this would be thinking of david writing this but this would apply to any of the kings of david give the king your justice O god 
there's that word justice, and your righteousness to the royal son, asking Yahweh or God, may he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. That's the king that's going to be doing the ruling. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance, that's salvation, to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. So all that can be tied into Jesus' ministry. Uh, Yahweh is, point E, Yahweh is king in Zechariah 14.9. We'll eventually get there. Uh, and Yahweh will be king. The Lord will be king of the whole earth, it says. Uh, Zephaniah 3.14 uh, and I've got that written right there at the bottom. Ze- remember Zephaniah, chapter 3, 14 and 15. I've got that point three. Watch this. Listen to the chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 of Zephaniah. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Sound familiar so far? Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Now take that and overlay that with Zechariah 9.9. You've got shouting, you've got rejoicing, daughter of Zion, uh, daughter of Jerusalem. And you've got sing, shout, daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem. Rejoice is in there. And then now it says, the Lord has taken away your judgments against you he has cleared away your enemies not only has he defeated satan but he's on his way to the cross and is going to take away your sin you can make this your enemies uh, you know physical enemies in the old testament but then look at this the king of israel the lord so the king of israel the man or the lord god is in your midst the king god He's in your midst, uh, and you shall never fear again. So just how interesting, how close Zephaniah is. If you turn the page, page 28, I've got that verse 14 and 15 of Zephaniah there in the Hebrew. If I read it backwards, I mean, correctly in Hebrew, I, I'm not reading the Hebrew, just reading the, the translation word for word. Sing, daughter of Zion, shout, Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter of Jerusalem has taken away Yahweh, Yahweh, that's again, the Lord, Yahweh, has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy, the King of Israel, which would be the Messiah. Yahweh is in your midst. So Yahweh's doing the work. The King would be the son of David, who is Yahweh, is in your midst. Uh, No, you shall see disaster more. So that, I mean, that's just... I, I find that insightful when you read that over with over chapter nine, verse nine of uh, Zechariah. Here's these words uh, again: uh, the king will come with to you or with the benefit for you of righteousness. That's Rasha, um, Nosa, who is having salvation or bringing salvation. There's that word. I point one under B, passive verb, as in having salvation so the king receives salvation for himself and at point four out of the new international commentary of the old testament for the book of Zechariah, this was one of the footnotes uh and this i just want you to see this this is a, this is a technical footnote in a commentary uh so 
it says MT, which would be the Masoretic text. Nosa is a Nifel, uh, while OG has Zozan, present active participle. The latter suggests an underlying Hebrew text with a Hifel, and there's some references, notes that, quote, the participles of the reflexive or passive stems, especially the Nephel, correspond especially to the English Ibel or Abel term in the Latin as far as, uh, as being desirable or savable. And so it's a passive. He is now, the king is savable. And now that he's savable, he's got salvation for you. And so indicating their king that's coming on that day is going to be savable and will be able to come and help them. Uh, Isaiah, on point page 29, Isaiah combines righteous and salvation in these verses. And I've got, I won't read them to you, but Isaiah 45, 46, 51, all about righteous and salvation. Uh, point uh, D, 3, Annie means poor, afflicted, humble, and it's translated humble or lowly. The person who is in a humble or any condition is poor without adequate resource. Now, this is what this word, he is gentle, which gives the impression to me he's got soft hands. Uh, that's not what it means. He's humble, which means, you know, he doesn't want to flaunt himself. He's just kind of, you know, a wallflower standing in the background. Uh, gentle, humble, uh, the word is A-N-I, a- uh, transliterated. Uh, the person who is humble or Annie, their condition is poor. Uh, they don't have enough, not enough. They're inadequate. They're uh, not of resources. They're dependent on others. He's com- Here comes your king. He's, he's humble. He- he's poor. He's inadequate. He's dependent on others. We're not, you know, we're not talking about a government official who's dependent upon taxation. We're talking about your king is coming to you, and he needs something himself. And what does he need? He needs it from Yahweh. Uh, it goes on. The opposite would be arrogant and haughty eyes. The idea here matches the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, 2 through 3. He grew up before him. This is, again, helping identify the word any or gentle or humble, uh, more like poor, not having enough, dependent upon others. And Isaiah says the same thing. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, who he, the suffering servant, grew up before Yahweh. Yahweh's watching the suffering servant grow up, which is amazing because uh, the, the child is growing. He grew up before him like a tender root, and there's that root, root, root just like we talked about last, week, last time we identified Nazareth, maybe coming from that ideal of the branch or the root, the, the, the netzi um, from the Hebrew. Uh, uh, like a tender root and like a root out of dry ground. Dry ground would be possibly the virgin birth or more likely the cursed line of David. The tree's been cut down, it's a stump, it's dry, there's no fruit here. But wait, he came out of nowhere, uh, out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty, and that most likely is referring to the glory of God, to attract us to him. He himself wasn't appearing like God. Uh, Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain like one from whom people hide their faces he was despised 
and we held him in low esteem. We looked at him, and he was poor. He was not adequate. He did not have enough, but yet he was the one God chose. And Jesus is that. He is gentle, humble, not so much a character trait. You know, when he spoke, he was gentle. He was kind. He was humble when he spoke. Unless he's calling them snakes and vipers and insulting. I mean, he insulted everybody. I mean, he, he, he told everybody there, there's only one, I said before, there's only one thing Jesus did not stop and correct. How would you like to be with the person? Everything is corrected. The rabbis, the Pharisees, the Levites, the disciples, even his mother. Mom, it's not time. You know, everybody's getting corrected except one thing. The word of God is never corrected. It's He's always brought back and says the word, the word, the word is never correct. Everything else, their rituals, their their ten, everything is corrected. The, the kings, everybody's corrected. So he's not gentle, humble. He's like my God. That's why they nailed him on a cross. I mean, the guy's he's got he's not you know he you I'm not saying Jesus was rude, but that word is not saying Jesus was humble. You can say he was he's he's definitely. Uh, uh, what we'd say, uh, 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 you know, uh, where I'm thinking of, merciful. Uh, I've got to quit. I'm thinking of words. Uh, but here, this idea that he, he is not enough as a man. He's going to need Yahweh. And that's, that's this whole verse right here. That's Isaiah's talking about him. You're looking for God, and that's why the Jews rejected him, because they're looking for God. And this man looks so much like a man that he's poor. He's not enough. And they despised him, but yet he was the one. And he, of course, was looking for who? Yahweh for his deliverance, and yet he was Yahweh. So there's your hypostatic union. Uh, uh, and then I gotta, I've got to quit for just because I've got to be socially acceptable. Uh, but I really want to talk on page 30 because there you've got donkey. Uh, and very quickly, what to separate that from... And I'll get into this next week. Donkeys uh, were uh, a, a purebred. Uh, a mule would be a, a, a male donkey. A father would be a, a male donkey with a female horse would produce a mule. And they were uh, hybrids, and they were probably imported. And they were popular for a while, but Jesus is going to come riding in on a donkey or an ass would be another that's another word for it on a donkey which is a colt the foal of a donkey the reason foal of a donkey is important is because this donkey's mother was a donkey which means jesus came riding in on a purebred donkey he did not come riding in on a mule which would be a mule the foal of a horse so once again, this is a donkey, a purebred, no horse involved. Not even a mother or father or it is a donkey. So if we're comparing horses, there's the horses, the military horses. This is a purebred donkey. And we'll get into that next week some more. And that's, I mean, that's why you've got that redundant uh, riding a donkey, the foal or a colt, the, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Why, why is that important? Because that means this is not just a donkey. It's mom and dad were donkeys. Okay. A mule would be a mixture. Okay, I've got to quit, and uh, 
There's many other things there we need to do. I'll pray, and you're free to go. Father, we do thank you for the chance to look into these things. We thank you for your word. We ask that we, again, would accept it humbly, that we'd allow your spirit to make corrections in our lives and corrections in our understanding, and even in my teaching, that I, I, the things that I said that were inaccurate or in, unclear, that the spirit of God would bring about teachers and insights for the, everybody to understand and hear and understand what the spirit of God is saying to us at this time in history. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for your time.